0: This is Archive Atlanta, episode 175, Dixie Hills Riot. You're listening to Archive Atlanta, a history podcast where each week I'll be sharing a story about the people, places, and events that shape the history of the city of Atlanta. I'm your host, local tour guide, and total history nerd, Victoria Lemos. Hey everyone, happy Friday podcast break is over and it was so needed and allowed me time to breathe and get a handle on my new job, have some family time, and then research in the way that I really prefer, which is kind of letting the stories come to me. And that is how today's episode came about. And long-time listeners know that I am not the best at lining up my episodes with like the outside world, you know, like I'll do like a Christmas episode in July, but this week that all changes because the Dixie Hills Riot, which was a days-long community uprising born out of the frustrations of a whole host of issues that we'll cover, happened exactly 55 years ago today. So to talk about Dixie Hills in 1967, you have to start with the Harlem Riot of 1964. This is considered the first of hundreds of riots that happened through the 1960s. That one took place in July after a 15-year-old boy was killed by a New York City police lieutenant. And that murder set off six nights of rioting that ended with one person dead, 118 people injured, and 465 people arrested. 1964 saw three more riots in Rochester, Dixmoor, and Philadelphia. And 1965 had the famous Watts Riots. 1966 had at least six, including the Chicago West Side riots, and that leads us to the long, hot summer of 1967. Yes, it has an official name and a Wikipedia page, apparently. So in just two summer months of that year, the United States saw 159 riots, which left 83 people dead and tens of millions of dollars in property destroyed. June was Atlanta, Boston, Cincinnati, Buffalo, and Tampa, and July was Newark, Detroit, Birmingham, Chicago, New York City, Milwaukee, Minneapolis, New Britain, Rochester, Plainfield, and Toledo. On July 29, 1967, after all of those, President Lyndon Johnson signed Executive Order 11365, which established the National Advisory Commission on Civil Disorders, which was chaired by the governor of Illinois, Otto Kerner. So other members included New York City Mayor Lindsay and Atlanta's police chief, Herbert Jenkins. So the goal here was to figure out what happened and why rioting, you know, what could be done to prevent it, etc. And this commission produced a report that in February of 1968, and it's often called the Kerner Report, explained it all. And let me tell you, when I hear that a report... Uh, you know, written by mostly white people in 1967, figured it out. I'm like, oh, this is gonna be super problematic. But it turns out it was extremely accurate and really progressive. And this commission determined that white America was responsible for the structural and societal failings that had led to these uprisings. And quote, white society is deeply implicated in the ghetto. White institutions created it, white institutions maintain it, and white society condones it. End quote. I'm getting a little ahead of myself here, so let's go back to June of 1967. To understand Atlanta, I'll give you some statistics that I've talked about in previous episodes. By the mid-1960s, Black Atlantans comprised 45% of the city's population, yet they were only legally allowed to live in 22% of its housing. Black children comprised 60% of the school-age population, but there were only nine black schools in contrast to 14 white ones. So black schools had double sessions uh, each day. So basically, you'd go to school like afternoon or morning or afternoon to fit everybody in. There's overcrowding, there's segregation, there's income inequality, there's unemployment, there's poverty. There's so many of the exact same issues we have today. Dixie Hills and underserved neighborhoods across Atlanta had been complaining about these things for decades. And that's one of the things that really popped out in this research is like none of these issues that we talk about in this episode were new. They had commissions that were formed. You know, they were alerting government uh, in very organized ways for decades. In Dixie Hills, neighbors had their own set of complaints. Um, The neighborhood was established in the early 1930s as a middle-class African-American section just outside of the city limits. And by 1949, with the post-war boom in residents that I always talk about, the community is begging for well-paved roads or any paved roads, uh, working streetlights, sanitary facilities, and a closer fire station. So at this point, there was no black firefighters yet, and the closest station was very far away. So neighbors are concerned. They're like, it's several miles away. It's staffed with only white firemen. And even if they did make it there, there was no running water. By 1950, there were more than 200 homes in Dixie Hills, 50 of them were new, and none of them had running water. Most had attempted to dig their own wells, but there was only one well that was actually deep enough, I think it was 400 feet down, that would not dry out over the summer. So I said 1950, not 1850. And in typical government fashion, instead of using these county funds to address these issues, they built a park. Anderson Park, which is still there today, was partially opened in 1949, and it was formally dedicated in 1950 for the exclusive use of African Americans. Dixie Hills neighbors and even a church tapped into the park's water line to access clean running water. They're like, "Okay, great, you got us a park. Excellent. Um, can okay, we're just gonna borrow some of this?" In 1955, the Federal Housing Administration announced that 14 two-story apartment buildings were coming to Dixie Hills, built on Verbena Street at Shirley Place. So this would bring over 100 units into the neighborhood. They were rented for $65 a month. And by 1956, they built a really tiny little shopping plaza along Verbena um, with multi-tenant stores to service all of these new neighbors. Just over a decade later, this shopping center would be the epicenter of the Dixie Hills riot. On Saturday, June 17th, 1967, Eddie Wilkins, who was living at 48 Shirley Place, so just, you know, right around the corner, had just left the Flamingo Grill and was standing on the corner of the shopping center property. I want to preface this by saying that this account changes depending on what you read. So the Kerner report has like one account, the newspapers have one, Um, there was reports filed, you know, to the city that are in the archives. And they're all, the basics are the same, but there's small details that are different. So um, I've kind of tried to pull everybody together to paint this picture. So Wilkins is on the property. He's in the parking lot. He's 21. He's legally allowed to drink. So he's like, you know, I don't know what the problem is. But three security guards from the Flamingo come out to harass him. There is a uh, some words exchange. There's a shove. There's a fist fight. And then Atlanta police are called to back up the security guards. And then things deteriorated from there. So a crowd, close to 300 people, gathered around the shopping center. And as Eddie is placed into the Belize cruiser, his sister Georgia was arrested and charged with assault and battery on an officer, resisting arrest and cursing. There is another bystander, Joseph Kendrick, who was also arrested for interfering with an arrest, profane language, assault and battery on an officer. So as the evening went on, the crowd grew larger and larger, and more police are sent. And so like I mentioned earlier, the community was mad. I mean, I don't know how hot it was that night, but you know, we're in the middle of a super heat wave. It's summer in Atlanta. Um, There's lots of complaints. Garbage is overflowing. It would go two weeks without getting picked up. Uh, There was no playgrounds. There was no swimming pool. Uh, Anderson Park was inaccessible to them. So while it was in Dixie Hills, they couldn't really walk into it easily. Of the 16 city aldermen in Atlanta, only one was black, and so Dixie Hills residents did not feel represented. The next day was Sunday, June 18th, and Stokely Carmichael, former chairman of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, arrived in Dixie Hills wearing a Malcolm X t-shirt. So quick primer on SNCC, if you are unaware, it was officially formed in 1960 as an outgrowth of the student sit-in movements of that year. And the organization's responsible for a lot of the stuff that we, you know, the highlights of the civil rights movement, like the Freedom Rides of 62, the March on Washington, um, Freedom Summer. And so when Carmichael took over from John Lewis in 1966, they label this time or period in SNCC's history as the Black Power Era. And this is a whole other episode. It's it's a whole other podcast. Um, But his tenure was very short-lived. And so in May of 1967, one month before the Dixie Hills riot, um, someone named H. Rap Brown took over. And we'll talk about him later. But Carmichael was still showing up where he felt he was needed. So uh, he had been somewhere else in Atlanta that day checking in on a family. And then that Sunday... Day in Dixie Hills, he shows up. There is, of course, tension with police. He is arrested along with four others um, after he holds a community meeting at St. Joseph Church. And so they're all in jail. Um, kind of an interesting story. Their bonds were all posted by a black dentist named R.C. Bell, but Carmichael refused to accept bond because the police would not return his comb. On Monday, June 19th, someone threw a brick at the shopping center. It hit a window It set off a store alarm, and so a young black man was disabling the alarm. Like, it had been going off because someone hit the window. He had seen police do this before. He's, like, hitting it with a stick. It's hard to explain. But when the police pull up, they just see this guy disabling the alarm. So there's yelling. There's a scuffle. The kid pushes back um, to the officer, and he takes out his gun and shoots him. And so as 250 people gathered for a meeting that night at St. Joseph Baptist, the incident was high on their list of grievances. They're like, this is totally unacceptable. And at this meeting were Alderman QV Williamson, who was, again, the one black alderman, and Senator Leroy Johnson, who was also a black man. And both men encouraged neighbors to sign a petition. You know, very peaceful, very Atlanta way of doing things. And again, the, the tensions between... The SNCC, or at least Stokely Carmichael, and kind of the old guard is a whole other episode. Uh, But Stokely Carmichael was in the crowd. Other members of SNCC were in the crowd. And they're like, they were like heckling and shouting and accusing this, again, the old guard leaders of being very accommodationist. And so when the meeting ends, the crowd spills into the streets. It grows quickly, it reaches some people say almost a thousand, and there were rocks and bottles, and the police come in with canine forces and riot squad gear, and they begin shooting guns into the air. That day, the Aldermanic Board approved three anti-rioting ordinances. Mayor Allen signed them just in case and elected officials, like, with a straight face. They're like, oh, no, no, this is not related to Dixie Hills at all. We just, you know, we just thought this was a good idea. Um, But ordinance one permitted the mayor to proclaim a state of emergency for, I think, up to three or four days. Closed city streets and buildings. Ordinance two provided stricter method of issuing uh, parade permits. Ordinance three permitted the mayor to issue curfews for people under 18 from 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. He would use these ordinances the very next day. On the morning of Tuesday, June 20th, at 9.15 a.m., bulldozers and tractors from the city were at Dixie Hills and they were grading a landlot to use as a playground. Street cleaners were cleaning the streets, sewers were being cleaned, so the city's like, oh, we're on it, we on it, whatever you need, we got it. And so while the day was quiet, the night was not. Another group of people formed, hovering around 200, and they were met in response with 300 police officers. Someone threw a cherry bomb somewhere in the crowd, and then police officers started shooting. And that random shot made it all the way to Mr. Ross, who was just sitting on the porch of his apartment home, and he was killed. Subsequent gunfire erupted, injuring three other people. One of them was a nine-year-old boy. And so police are really quick to be like, oh, no, no, we don't know where the shot come from. I think it was a civilian sniper up there. And the Reverend Joseph E. Boone, who was then with the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, was like, that is an absolute lie. Like, we we know what happened. We know what you did. And so Mayor Allen is immediately in the area. He's touring the area and he institutes his curfew just for Dixie Hills, 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. Senator Johnson is attempting to form a youth patrol of young Black men ages 18 to 27, and that was intercepted, so to speak, by SNCC and H. Brown. So Brown likened the patrol to traitors and threatened that they would be dealt with as traitors in the community if they they went out. Um, And so over the next few days, Johnson and other moderates made a petition to get Carmichael and, you know, other people they didn't like in SNCC uh, out of Atlanta. And they wanted to stop these, quote unquote, radical leaders. But they were, it's interesting because they were successful. So the people in, living in Dixie Hills, they had a petition signed by a thousand neighbors, you know, also felt like, no, no, this is not representing us. This is not the Atlanta way that we're used to. You know, we're, we're very, we're very nonviolent. We're very calm and organized. By June 30th, after a week of negotiations, concessions were reached with shopping center owners. So the owners of the shopping center were white. They agreed to hire a black butcher and a part-time cashier, as well as a black manager. They would stop selling wine to the community, and the grocery store would stock vegetables. The Flamingo Grill would lower their prices, and they would also attempt to, quote, prevent customers from picking up cooking odors, end quote. I'm assuming that place was like smell, like when you went in to buy buy something, you would come out smelling like the food. So they said they were going to work on ventilation. The owners of the apartment building, Piedmont Development Corp., which also was a white company, promised to stop requiring tenants to paint their own apartments. Uh, They set up regular pest control. They even allowed a Black pest control company to bid it. They also allowed Black-owned trades, which plumbing and electrical, to bid work there as well. They promised they would hire a Black uh, apartment manager and they were going to allow a tenant association to be formed the following year 1968 just months before the anniversary of the riot mayor ivan allen was summoned by the naacp to visit dixie hills and he arrived with ray nixon who was the public's chief and the park's general manager They promised to ask the apartment owners to plant grass. Um, They promised that the city was ready and waiting to make park improvements. You know, whenever the residents decided what they wanted, they were going to do it. Um, They were soon finishing up a path into Anderson Park right near Penelope Street. And the play lot or playground on Verbena Street was open and staffed. And they were also going to lay out like this comprehensive summer program um, and plan more sidewalks and removal of abandoned vehicles. In April of 1968, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated in Memphis, Tennessee, and riots broke out across America. Atlanta still prides itself on maintaining its city-too-busy-to-hate image. And on that night, while there there was a couple of small things, there was a gathering of AU students in the Morehouse gym, there was a tiny fire in a grocery store, it paled in comparison to what the nation was watching on the nightly news. But that didn't mean that the mayor and those in City Hall were not 100% worried about more riots. So one month later, Atlanta unveiled a $2.25 million program to quote-unquote improve the city's slums. The areas specified in this plan were Kirkwood-Edgewood, Boulevard, Dixie Hills, Nash-Washington, and Northwest Perry, and Summerhill-Mechanicsville. Allen also formed an advisory committee on civil disorders tasked with implementing the Kerner Report, Uh, recommendations. And they also opened an office of night mayor. And this was essentially a mayor whose hours were at night. So if you worked the night shift or you couldn't access government offices during traditional business hours, um, you could talk to him. In true Atlanta fashion, the headlines read that we have the best response to the Kerner Report. Like we are the better than any city in America. But when a reporter polled the alderman about the report, Only one had read the entire thing. Four said they read parts of it. Uh, One read a summary and one was like, oh, I read about it in the newspaper. Um, But what this meant is that any good things that came out of what the government did or the government response uh, in the wake of the riot were mainly credited to Ivan Allen. And while they hired some, you know, police community service officers from these disenfranchised areas and they kind of upped the sanitation department pickups, they didn't fix any structural or societal issues that the Kerner Report talked about. And so when Ralph David Abernathy took over the SCLC after King's murder, he says, quote, we live in two Americas, so we live in two Atlantas. White Atlanta is far better off than black Atlanta, end quote. I encourage you to go to Verbena Street today and tell me how much change or progress we've made. Um, what really got me hooked into this story is, is doing that drive. So I had, I had done a little bit of research and I was over at Lincoln Cemetery with some friends. And I was like, oh, let me go drive down there. The shopping center is still there, um, and the apartments, the 14 apartments that I talk about in the story, are still there, except they're vacant, and half of them are burned, and half of them are demolished, and they're surrounded in fencing. And the people that live in the immediate vicinity of the shopping center are living in dire poverty. And is that new playground from 1967 still there? It is. Is that new little path to Anderson Park still there? it is. And while those things provide a small comfort to the community, I think we're a long way away from addressing one of Atlanta's biggest issues, which is having the largest income inequality in the country. So there you have it, the story of the Dixie Hills riot. Thank you everyone for listening. Remember to leave a rating and or a review. You can also visit the Patreon link in the show notes to support the podcast. Hope everyone has a great weekend. I'm so happy to be back and I'll talk to you next week.